Let's pray together. Our Father, you are the creator and we are your creatures. We depend on you for all things. You are a gracious Father who has poured out mercy and compassion and goodness, kindness, grace by your Spirit through the work of your Son. And we begin, begin this morning by thanking you for all that you have done that you have saved us, that you have brought us to yourself. But Lord, as a people, we come before you now, recognizing that we have not done all that you have required of us, and that we have done those things that you have warned us against. Lord, we come this morning as a people confessing our sin to you. Take just a few moments for silent confession. Father, we join the psalmist when he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah. And like the psalmist, Father, we acknowledged our sin to you. We come before you not covering our iniquity. We come to you saying, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And Father, we are relieved and gratified to know that you forgive the iniquity of our sin. We praise you, Father, that you forgive us. Out of your grace and your mercy, you remind us again and again that we belong to you and you belong to us. And our sin can't even undermine that. Father, we pray this morning we pray this morning for the, those, your people who gather in Greenville, who gather in 
Texas, who gather in our country, who gather in countries around the world, we pray that you would feed your people, that you would strengthen us, that you would conform us to the image of your Son as you've purposed. We pray for those who do not know you. Lord God, we know that you made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell on the face of the whole earth, that you sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. And we're asking this morning that you would grant that all men everywhere may seek after you and find you. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon all flesh, that you'd bring the nations into your fold, that you would give your son the inheritance that you promised all the nations, and that you would hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Sorry. So over the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about the church. The church. We do this every year. Comes around this time where we have a, a renewal, membership renewal. Gives us a chance to talk about the church, what it means to be the church. But in talking about this, what I want to do is tell you a story. We'll do it that way. Now, there are lots of things that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what God does with us, what he does for us, what we do in response to him. We'll talk about our rituals, right? The sort of things that we do as a people as the church. I want to start by grounding us, this discussion, in the story that begins at the very beginning of Scripture. Who we are is a part of a story that's been going on for a long, long time time. This idea of the church didn't just fall out of the sky. We're going to see that there's a lot of continuity in what it means to be the people of God. And if we don't see that continuity, we can tend to think that, well, what do we do with the rest of our Bible? What do we do with that? Well, there's a lot we can do when we see there's a strand running through it. I want to do this by giving you a grid. I didn't make this grid up. The first time that I read it was from a guy named Graham's Goldworthy in a book called According to Plan. It was really good. But he sort of walks, sort of walks through this story with kind of a three-point grid. 
And it's real simple. It's God's people, God's place, under God's rule. Right? Sentence. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. We could probably even put it to music. God's people. No? If you think of a jingle, you can tell me later. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. And here's what we're going to do, and I'm going to tell you this really quickly so that you don't faint. I'm going to walk us through that, that story, the first 12 chapters of the Bible. Hang on. So I can see it. There it is. It's not upside down. First 12 chapters of the Bible. I promise I can do it. It's, not, it's going to be painless. It really will be. We'll walk through these three things. There's lots of, obviously lots of material in those first, three, first 12 chapters. But it is foundational for us to grasp what is happening. That will set us up in a good way to really be able to apprehend this idea of the church. So we'll start at the beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Here we go, 30,000 foot. So God creates out of nothing. God creates out of nothing habitable spaces. He creates a place, Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I want you to, I'm going to draw some, some correlations between things. So they're just select verses that I'll read. But here we have this idea, right? God creates out of nothing this place. After Genesis 1, 1, and 2, it unfolds over the course of seven days. Right? A three-tiered sort of picture of the world. Right? If, we, if we're going to come from a biblical sort of view of things, here's what the Bible, the Bible does. It gives us this sort of three-story picture of creation. The heavens, right? the invisible heavens, then the visible heavens, then the land, and then the sea down here. This is that place. And then we know, in the course of those days, he fills those spaces, right? Birds in the air, and then animals and creepy, crawly things on the ground, and fish and all manner of sea life. Creates all of those things. Well, within that three-tiered world, we got this idea that keeps coming through. God, the creator, is up here. His creatures are here. There's this distinction that we don't ever want to lose, but something's real interesting. There is a separation. God and us. Things are good. 
And then the climactic point of this, you've got the place, and now we've got God's people. Genesis 126, then God said, you know, that, let, us, let, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. 28, and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Heaven, land, earth, right? Sea, us. God has a place. He's got a people under his rule, right? He's going be, and it bees. It exists. It responds. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2, we zoom in. Listen to this. Genesis 2, 8, the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And one of those flowed around the whole land of Havilah. The other one of those flowed around the whole land of Cush. There's another that flows east of Assyria, and then another one flows somewhere else. I forget the name. You know what's interesting about that? You've got God's people zoomed in, right? But you've got another three-tiered place. Did you catch that? We don't always catch this. It's the Garden of Eden. That means there's an Eden. You've got the Garden. Then you've got Eden. And then you've got all the rest of the world. And I think we talked about this once, maybe once before. Eden, Ezekiel I th um, 28, I think, <clears throat> depicts Eden like a mountain. It's this great mountain where God is providing for his people. He's communing with his people. He's ruling over his people. This is the other thing that he does. Remember that? He gives, he gives them this sort of rule, right? You can eat of every tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? So we can stop there for a second. What was supposed to happen? What was supposed to happen? Was it just supposed to be this perpetual, you know, thing where they... They're tooling around the garden. They're eating from everything, but they can't eat from that one. And there's this idea where that was this temporary. Some theologians, they'll call this a probationary period. What was supposed to happen? Well, if we were to jump from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21, that's what was supposed to happen. 
What was supposed to happen was Adam was supposed to guard. Remember, the serpent comes in, deceives. What was Adam supposed to do? Adam was supposed to say, hey, you can't talk about our God like that. Get out of here. No, he's good. You're crazy. He wasn't supposed to reach for his own wisdom. He was supposed to seek wisdom from God. He was supposed to be clothed in glory. He was supposed to, he and he was supposed to populate, be fruitful and multiply. All these other God-glorifying beings doing stuff with the world, going out there and all the world, we're all the, and making it a God-glorifying place, giving it back to the Heavenly Father. They were supposed to move from this place to this consummated, full communion, unbreakable, everything that we're looking forward to in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what was supposed to happen. God, in his place, or in, in this place, with his people, right? Full fellowship. Right? Entering in, just like New Jerusalem, right? Heaven comes down. That was supposed to happen. But it didn't. Genesis 3, we see we got God's people, the man and woman, in his place, the garden. But God's rule kind of goes out the window. You know what happens. Eat the tree after deceived by the serpent. Then the serpent's cursed. Remember, he's going to crawl on the ground and lick the dust. All He's going to be defeated. Right? And then you have curse that comes to the woman. And then you have finally the curse that comes to Adam. In the middle of all this, you have Genesis 3.15, and we've talked about this before. This is where God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, that is the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We see a separation. Woman, serpent. And this is a gracious thing for him to put enmity between them. Conflict. Woman, the serpent, her offspring, the serpent's offspring. Now, the beautiful thing here is we see God still intends to have himself the people separated from these people. But, of course, the story doesn't end so well. Like, you know, toiling on the earth will, will be difficult, arduous. And the bearing of this people, God's people, is going to come with pain, labor pain. And you see this quite often all through the rest of the Scripture story, this this struggle to bear fruit, whether that is fruit of the ground or fruit from the womb, 
It's a struggle now. But it's still there. And then here's how it ends. Genesis 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherub, cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way toward, to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were in the garden, but they've been pushed out to Eden. We still got this hope of a people Oh, we've lost this place. All's not lost, right? They're still in the presence. I mean, God is still there, and we know that because of what comes next. Genesis 4, here we got, start to see maybe the seed. Right? Now, you know, just a second ago, we had two people. The woman's seed, the serpent's seed. Now we got two sons, Cain and Abel. And we know what happens Cain, he's making his offering. Abel, he's making his offering. And God says, you know, Abel, right on. I like that. Cain, not so much. We need to talk. Well, instead of, Lord, what, what do I need to do? Cain gets angry, and then we know what happens. Another fall, he kills his brother. And what happens as a result of that? After Cain kills his brother, listen to this. Genesis 4.12, he says, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. Yikes. An intensification of the curse that already happened. And then listen to this. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Do you see what's happening here? So now we've got this three-tiered world, right? Heaven, land, sea. And then we zoom in. Garden, Eden, rest of the world. The people have already lost the garden. They're out here. And now we go one step further. Cain is out there in the world. You see how we're moving away. Well, from there, we've got these, these two people, these two sons. They sort of yield two different people. Remember, Cain has a son. Name's Lamech. Lamech's not a nice guy. He writes a poem. He writes a poem. And if you remember, I skipped this. You know, Cain was real worried when he was getting driven out. Oh, no, Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to do this. And he's like, God says, okay, if, if anybody does anything to Cain, right, seven times right, the judgment, so to speak. Well, Lamech sort of saw that as a badge of honor. Lamech killed a guy and then said, hey, if it was seven times, 
For Lamech, it'll be 70 times 7 for me, or 70 times for me. You've got this violence and this boasting that pictures this people that comes from Cain out in a city. But then we got this other thing right at the end of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, we see what comes from another son, right? We lost Abel, but right at the end, Genesis 4, or excuse me, yeah, at the end of Genesis 4, uh, Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And 4.26 says this, To Seth also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. And then here's the line. At this time, or at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Oh, okay, all right. That's a good thing, right? You know, Cain's line, kind of yucky. But Seth's, now we're talking. Now it looks like we're getting that, that outline again of the people of God, God's people. We still don't have the place anymore, but it looks like we've God's people, we got God's people, and it looks like we got a rule again. God's rule ruling over them. They're calling out to him. And then five gets better. Five, it sort of kind of sounds like it's taken us back to Genesis 1. Listen to this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them, named them man, and when they were, excuse me, when they were created. And then you got this other character in this, as the descendants unfold. You got Enoch. What does it say about Enoch? Enoch walked with God. And then you got another character down the descendant, the descendant line of Seth. His name is Lamech, not like the other Lamech. This is a different Lamech. This Lamech, he had a son, and he says this. He's going to name his son, and he's naming his son with this hope. He says this hoping with the birth of his son, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you hear some echoes of Genesis 3 there? Oh, maybe this one is going to give us a break from this, bring that relief that we've been hoping for. Here we have... God's people showing some promise. God's people, they're God's rule, not the place. But that doesn't last long. You got another fall at the beginning of chapter 6. I'll just jump to the, the, the outcome. Chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the hearts of his, excuse me, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And then 6.11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It was ruined. That's Literally what corrupt means. It was ruined. We just, we, at, the, at five, we had so much hope. 
we are seeing God's people start to crystallize and then six snatched away because now the whole world is filled with violence. Corruption. Except for one. Oh, we got a little hope. Except for one, right? This was Lamech's son that he named, hoping that he was going to give us relief. Noah. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Oh, and Noah walked with God. All right. God's people under God's rule. When I, I'm a little concerned because there's no place. And I mean really no place because you know what comes next. God chooses this, this one, Noah, and then tells Noah, you know what? I'm going to wipe it all out. Flood. But he says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into this ark. He's going to build an ark. And you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And you're going to bring into that ark, remember what he brings into the ark? All the animals, right? The creeping things. All of that stuff. Everything that has the breath of life on the land. He's going to bring in. He's going to bring in food for them to eat. And in 622, it says Noah did exactly what God told him to do. Okay, maybe we're there. And in 7.1, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before this generation. So now we've got God's people. Under God's rule, Noah, his family, doing what God said. But we, and we kind of we have a place, don't we? We've got an ark which sort of mimics the sort of three-tiered thing. You got up here, you got the, the body of the ark, and then it's under the, the part that's under the sea. Right? That's not by accident. I mean, that's really a literary kind of thing that the authors are doing. But then the flood comes, and here's where we start to see the real import of this, what the flood is doing. 719 says, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains were under the whole heaven, excuse me, excuse me, uh, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Do you get what just happened there? We got heavens, no land, just water. It's all covered with water. So just, we'll we'll say that slowly. It's all covered with water. Do you remember where that happened before? Genesis 1. 1 and 2. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was this 
amorphous, watery mass. It's all coming undone. It's being uncreated, if we could say it that way. 7.22 says, everything, just in case you weren't convinced of that, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was, breath of, was the breath of life died. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. But then we have this wonderful thing happening. Right? They're in this place. The waters don't prevail. 8.1 says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subside. So this might be trickier. Right? The same word for wind in Hebrew is also used for spirit. That's deliberate. Genesis 1, the spirit hovered over those waters and brought out what God was creating. Here, that wind, the word is like ruha, right? That ruha was there. It's deliberate. We're supposed to see some connection. God is starting over with the place, potentially. 8.13, it says this, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off the earth. And Noah removed the uh, covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. That's Genesis 1 again. When God created the land, he created dry ground. That's not an accident. You're supposed to hear re creation. This is what God is doing. This is hopeful. We're on to something, right? We're back on the earth. God's people under his rule. We seem to be getting a redo here, so to speak. I mean, and, and God's rule, you see this in Noah. Noah's, he's, he's building altars and making sacrifices to God that are pleasing to him, a pleasing aroma. And God is saying stuff that he said back in Genesis 1 to Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God gives them stuff to eat. Every moving thing, this is uh, uh, Genesis 9.3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. Wow, God's given them this stuff to eat. Well, that sounds familiar. Genesis 2. And then we even have a garden, for goodness sake. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Right? You can't make this stuff up, people. This is deliberate. This is the story of how God has for himself a people in a place wherein he will rule over them. That's a good place. But then, 
We're right there, right there. And another fall. Noah's drinking, right? But it's interesting, that's not the fall. Noah's drinking, and his son looks on his nakedness, right? Shame, that kind of thing. And then we got, you know, blessings to Shem and Jepheth, and those are two of Noah's sons. And then a curse on Ham, right? We think, all right, well, we can recover from that. We still have God and his people, because the, the blessings were pretty good. God and his people and his place. God still has this covenant with them. Not going to destroy anything. Yeah. Then we get to 10 and 11. Genesis 10 and 11. Another fall. Another wicked city. Remember Cain? His descendants. They were so close. God had his people. Looked like we were going to do it. Rule. Now what goes on? Everybody's got one language. One people, one language, and there's one place, and it's a place that they're making. The people go, hey, you know, I got an idea. And the other people say to that people, well, what? And they say, let's build us a place. Right. We got the heavens up there. They're way up there. We're da- way down here. I don't know. I think we can get up there. Don't you? And the other people go, hey, yeah, I think you're right. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's do it. And so they get to work. With the help of the aliens. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Oh, come on, man. That was, that was, that was ancient aliens, you know. So they build themselves, and it, you say a tower, and you kind of think the leaning tower of Pisa or something. And that's not actually, it's a, the idea is a ziggurat, which is, it looks like a pyramid. Or like a mountain, as kids would say. They're building a mountain to get to the heavens. You see what's happening? Let's... Let's bring these two things together. Well, we saw how that goes. God said, well, good night. If they can do this, let's, we'll take care of that. Different languages. That breaks the people up because they can't communicate with others anymore. And it drives them out. It disperses them all over the place. But something else is happening here, too. And this is something that you see in Deuteronomy 32. Um, you see this. Um, you ever, you ever, you ever um, get weirded out when you read Daniel? Like there's that... The one part when you're reading Daniel and you're just going, I don't know what to do with that. Daniel's praying. And then, you know, I think it was a Gabriel or Michael. Wait, I think Michael. You know, one of them shows up and they're like, sorry, sorry. I was running a little late. I was, I was out wrestling with the prince of Persia. 
that's not a man. This, this, this divine being is out wrestling with another divine being that's kind of, kind of over this area. There's a guy, Michael Heisner, Heisner, or Heiser, made a really good argument that what you see in Babel is God giving, the, giving man over to these other beings, not gods, not gods in that sense. And, you know, it's divine counsel. They're supposed to be doing the bidding of God, but these, these guys, they're just leading everybody astray. Leading everybody into darkness, but God's given them over. That's scary. You see the separation that comes from Seth, and it's sort of backwards because it does it in chapter 10. From the coastland peoples, those are Jepheth's people, spread um, from the, excuse me, from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Uh, 10.20 says, these are the sons of Ham They're by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. This is what happened. They've been dispersed now. There is no God's people. There is no place. But God still rules. We see this at the very end of Genesis 11. Comes down Seth's line, and, and then this gives us a little hope, all right? Because we've seen this happen before, where we've had this big fall event, some bad things happen, and then we have, we, or at least we see a line that seems like is going to work itself out, right? Descendants that are going to be that people of God again. And you see this in 11, uh, 1131, after goes through uh, um, um, Seth's, I mean, uh, uh, Shem's line. 1131 says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Okay. So we got... These guys, these people, they're trying to make their way out of that sea of humanity that's out there in the world, it seems. They're going somewhere. Okay, that's promising. But one thing that I skipped that would make us struggle. The verse right above at 1130 says, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. All we have at this point is a people out there in the world, away from God. And now it's narrowed in on a descendant that has no children, and we got barrenness. Ugh. That's the rug being yanked out from under you. Where 
is God's people going to come from? Who will be under God's rule? I thought it was going to be here, but there are no people coming here. Are we going to have a place anymore? Again, I want you to think about the significance of what God is doing. Man is driven from the garden into Eden, from Eden into the world, and then by chapter 6, from the world back out into the sea. He draws out Noah. Again, we're sent into this, this family, or his family is sent into this place of curse and servitude. From this place into all the face of the earth, the world wandering, and now out there in a dispersed, wandering people, again, away from God. What is he going to do? Now we come to the point of this whole message. And this won't take long. What is God going to do with Abraham? Or Abram? What we've seen so far, we've seen children, descendants, coming from their predecessors. We've seen plenty of progeny. But this ebb and flow of God's people. And now, it's just just dark. Now we see God do something that he has not done up to this point. And this will be pivotal. This sets the trajectory of the rest of the Bible. If, if you don't understand anything about this morning, know this. This is the place where hope starts. Real hope. God has given all of these nations, all of the world, into the hands of these other gods. But he has a people. He chooses for himself people. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Yay! We got God. He's chosen a people. This people, they're responsive. Abraham's going or Abram's going. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they gathered. Um, Yeah, all that they gathered. And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the land of Canaan. That's where they were headed. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, listen to this. To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the east and I on the on it's going to be Bethel on the west and I on the east and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev he built these altars he comes into this land builds these altars you know what an altar is right it's a little mountain really fire on top get it we get to Sinai, big mountain, fire on top, little mountain, fire on top. This is where God is meeting with me in this place that he has promised to Abraham and his offspring. We've got God's people in God's place. And God's made, God's doing all the work. Formerly, he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. What has God done here? He's promised to do it. He blesses Abram. Genesis 1, Genesis 9. He's promised a great name. And this blessing is now going to revolve around this people. This people that God has chosen. And he's going to bless all the families of the earth in this guy. All the, all the families of the earth, those are nations. Which nations? All those nations that he gave up in Genesis 10. Y'all tracking with me? And he's promised a place, a land. He takes Abram and he brings him back. It's like man is coming back to God's mountain. He's coming back to Eden, coming back to the place that God intended for him to establish the work of his kingdom. And real quick, just let me show you this. I'll just tell you, give you a few. It doesn't, this gets reiterated over and over again, this promise that God is making to Abraham. This is how big of a deal it is. It gets reiterated in the rest of Genesis. It gets reiterated in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy. It gets reiterated in the histories, right? Whether we're talking about the judges or the kings, it gets reiterated in the prophets. Everybody keeps coming back to this, this moment, where God says, In Genesis 17, when he changes his name, no longer will I call you Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. A wife that's barren, no children. God is doing this. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. To Isaac, God says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven will give to you your offspring in all, the, all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. To Jacob, God Almighty, this is Isaac blessing Jacob. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply that you may become a company of peoples. Incidentally, that's the word for church, ecclesia, ecclesia, excuse me. 
May he give you the blessing of Abraham. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. On and on it goes, reiterated. But it wasn't just important then. It's important now. This this promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him, that he would have these, uh, these nations. Where does that go? Well, it's a linchpin for Paul. In Galatians 3.16, Paul says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We got that, right? Everybody remember that? Everybody on board with that? Paul is saying God's promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. You agree? Then Paul says this. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is speaking boldly here. He's saying, you know what? Christ, the Messiah, he was already there. Those promises were being made to him. Well, Jesus seemed to think so too because Jesus does this thing when he's commissioning all of his disciples. I mean, his disciples, you know what he says? You remember this, what he says? I mean, this doesn't just fall out of the air, this commission. Listen to this. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God's rule, right? Go, therefore, now all of our things will say, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I will all be with you all. I am with you always to the end of the age. But technically, grammatically, It doesn't say disciples, noun. Discipling is a verb in that passage. What Jesus says is, go therefore and disciple the nations. Nations. Baptizing them, nations, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the promise that God made to Abraham. It's come full circle. What God says to Abraham, when he says, and you shall all the nations be blessed, you know what Paul does with that? He says this in Galatians 3, 7. Know then that that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, vindicate the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's Paul is saying, 
The gospel was being preached then. That's ground zero. That's the epicenter. And it wasn't just for the, this, his point wasn't just for the Gentiles, it was also for the Jews who wanted to stick with the old system, the old covenant. We're not even talking about like a works righteousness here. They just wanted to stick with the old, you know, by faith, walking with God within the confines of the mosaic stuff. Paul overturns that. He says, look, that the promise was made to Abraham. The law, it doesn't subvert that. In fact, Jesus fulfills it. And so he can say this, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To your offspring was focused on Christ. We as God's people, gather around Him. In Him, we participate in the trajectory that was set so long ago. After a long story of hope for God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, we get this promise that it was going to happen, and it has in Christ. We, as the church, as a starting point, are God's people. In God's place, in this sense, in Christ, under His rule. Christ embodies it, Christ produces it this new reality that we stand in. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy. Thank you for how you have shown us through the ebb and flow of this history what you are accomplishing, making us your people, grounding this hope of a people with you, glorifying you in the earthy stuff of the history of this man, Abraham. I pray that you will use this to help us to see ourselves firmly set within the continuity of a history that you are unfolding. I pray that you would help us to see ourselves as part of this story, this story of redemption, this story of recreation, 
and renewal. Lord, we thank you that you have accomplished these things in your Son, and you are working it out by the power of your Spirit. In, his name that we pr- in Christ's name we pray, amen.